All right, the second half of Genesis chapter 25 begins a new division in the book of Genesis because we now begin to focus on the life of who? Right, Isaac. We're finished with Abraham. Now we'll be looking at Isaac and his family. Now, Isaac, of course, was the son of Abraham chosen by God to carry on the promise line of people who believed God and believed God's promises. And also, he was the son through whom the Savior of the world would come. So as we come to this lesson, number 57 in our Genesis study, which I have entitled Twin Troubles, you'll see that in just a minute, we are reminded of the fact that just as God had taken care of matters concerning the gaining of a wife for Isaac, hadn't he done that? Perfectly, gotten him a wonderful wife. We find that in this chapter now, so would he also take care of giving Isaac children or offspring. So when we find that Isaac and Rebekah were unable to have children for 20 years due to Rebekah's barrenness, we should at once realize that God would, of course, handle the situation, right? He was in control. He would handle it in his way and in his what? Time on his time schedule. And if anybody would have known the truth of the fact that God always fulfills his promises, it would have been Isaac. After all, he had been born to a woman who was not only 90 years old and well past menopause, but who had also been barren all of her childbearing life. And furthermore, his father had been 100 years old when he had been born. And his father, too, humanly speaking, had been dead reproductively. And God, of course, we know, had performed a mighty, mighty miracle when Isaac himself had come into the world. So when it came to the first trouble in Isaac's marriage, which was due to Rebekah's barrenness, we would hope to find that Isaac and Rebekah were able to handle the situation in a godly and patient manner which we're glad to announce that they did. They did. And God, of course, was eventually faithful to his promise, even though Isaac and Rebekah were married for, well, we should say 19 years until they conceived because their children were born in the, on the, after they'd been married for 20 years. So if I say 20, I just, you know, remember nine months of pregnancy. But they were married 19 years and some months before God actually opened up her womb. But then what happened? Then the troubles really began. Uh, Actually, what Isaac and Rebekah then began to experience was, as I've already told you, the name of this lesson, what they began to experience was twin troubles. Because they gave birth to not just one child, one son, but how many? Two, two sons, Esau and Jacob, as you well know, were twins. They were not, however, identical twins. They were anything but identical twins. They're what we call fraternal twins. But they did not look alike, and they did not have really much of anything in common other than the same parents. So with the birth of the twins, the struggles really began, struggles which even yet continue among the descendants of Esau and Jacob. If All you have to do is turn on your news at night and you will hear about the continuing struggles between the descendants of Esau and Jacob. Well, our outline, which is very simple, just two, I thought it was interesting, we have twin troubles and we've got two 
um, main divisions, twin divisions, twin troubles. We have, first of all, the sterility situation, and then we'll talk about the struggling son. So let's begin by looking about at the uh, sterility situation in verses 19 to 21 of Genesis chapter 25, starting verse 19. It says, And these are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham begat Isaac. And Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah to wife, the daughter of Bethuel, the Syrian of Padam Aram, the sister to Laban, the Syrian. And Isaac entreated the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord was entreated of him, and Rebekah, was, and Rebekah his wife conceived. Having listed back in uh, the first four verses of chapter 25 the descendants of Abraham through his second wife, Keturah, and then having listed in verses 12 to 18 the descendants of Ishmael, verse 19 now tells us that we are next going to hear about the generations of Isaac. See, we've heard about the generations of Abraham through Keturah, then we heard about the generations of Ishmael, and now we're being told we're going to hear about the generations of Isaac. In other words, his descendants. Yet rather than now listing off a name of very difficult, um, I mean a list of very difficult male names, which I would have trouble pronouncing, <laughs> instead of that we are immediately told of a problem. At least from a human perspective, this would appear to be a problem. From God's perspective, of course, we know it was no problem at all. The seeming difficulty was what? That Isaac's wife, Rebekah, just like his mother had been, like Sarah had been, Rebekah was barren. <clears throat> and Rebekah, notice, is described here as the daughter of Bethuel, and also the sister of Laban. That's kind of strange that Laban's name would pop up here. But we know that this is probably a, um, a hint of the fact that he is going to keep popping up in the, in the life of Rebekah and her children. Well, Isaac had been 40 years old, we're told, when he was married to Rebekah, but it was to be 20 years before she, and we know this from, uh, I think it's verse 26. Yeah, at the end of verse 26, we know that it would be 20 years because Isaac would actually be 60 years old when his sons were finally born. So there would be a wait of 20 years before they would actually have children. Over and over again, in the book of Genesis, the sovereignty of God is emphasized over and over and over. And one way in which God's sovereignty is demonstrated is by his delays, what men would call delays. God's, God works, if you've never learned this in your Christian life, God works on his time schedule. He works in his time, and he's beyond time, isn't he? You know, with him, a day is as a thousand years. A thousand years is a day. So he works on his time schedule, not our time schedule. We've already found out that Abraham and Sarah waited 25 years from the time they first received the promise from God that, he, that Abraham would be the father of many nations and that all the families of the earth would be blessed through him. 
from that point in time, which was back in Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3, until they actually had Isaac. That had been a wait of 25 years. We will also find out that Jacob had to work for 14 years before he received his dearly beloved Rachel to be his wife. And Joseph would wait for over 20 years before he would be uh, reconciled to his brothers, as you see here in this picture, and before he would see his father Jacob again. Yet regardless of these seeming delays, God's time schedule is always on time because it's always in the perfect time. In other words, he never acts too soon and he never acts too late. There is always perfect wisdom in God's timing of his actions in our lives. Our times, as it says in Psalm 31:15, our times are in his hands and we need to trust in his omniscient wisdom regarding that which appears, you know, from our perspective to be a delay. It is good to notice, as we said already, that Isaac and Rebekah's joint reaction to her situation, to her barrenness, that their reaction was godly. We don't hear of any complaints. We don't hear of any impatience on the part of either one of them. Abraham and Sarah had only waited 10 years to have a child before they took matters into their own hands and, um, you know, to try to ensure that Abraham would have a son. And, of course, they did that by using Hagar. They'd only waited 10 years after getting that initial promise before they got impatient. Isaac and Rebekah now had obviously learned this is good when children can learn from parents' mistakes, right? Now, in the next chapter, we find out that Isaac didn't learn from his father's mistake when he lied about his wife, you know, being his sister, because Isaac repeats the same mistake. But at least we can say that in this situation, about being patient as far as having a child is concerned, we find that Isaac and Rebekah learned from Abraham and Sarah's mistake because they don't do anything about their situation except pray, which was the very wisest and the most important thing for them to do. Isaac, we find, just like his father Abraham, was a man of prayer. And we learned this, didn't we, back in chapter 24, verse 62, when he was meditating and praying out in a field while he was awaiting the arrival of his wife-to-be. He was out there praying. And we see it again now in the 20 years he spent in trusting the Lord on behalf of Rebekah so that she might conceive a child. Of course, you know, Isaac had every right in the world, every right to pray that they might have children because he knew that Abraham's descendants through him, through the son of promise, which was Isaac himself, that, that his descendants would never multiply like the stars of the heavens nor like the, the dust grains of the earth or the, the grains of sand of all the earth's seashores unless Isaac and Rebekah had children. So you see, he knew what God's will was, so he prayed in accordance with God's will. So he had every right to pray that her womb would be open. Throughout the entire 20 years of Rebekah's barrenness, we also need to remember that Abraham was still alive. 
I remember last time, last lesson, Abraham died, but I told you that that was not in chronological sequence. Abraham actually lived until Isaac was 75 years old. So if Isaac had children when he was 60, this means that Abraham was around long enough to see... I mean, he was there during the whole 20 years when they didn't have children. Isaac and Rebecca didn't have children. He was also there to see the twins born and to even see them grow to be 15 years of age. All right? So don't forget that. So um, throughout that long 20-year wait for children, Isaac had his father to continually remind him that God would indeed prove himself faithful. Abraham probably told his son that God might even wait, because they really didn't know, but he might have said to Isaac, God might wait until Rebekah was beyond her childbearing years before he would perform a miracle and allow her to conceive. Because he had done that with Sarah, right? And Abraham might even have said that God would wait until Isaac himself was reproductively dead. So that, you know, the miracle of the birth of a child would even be more pronounced, would be more amazing. They didn't know, but this might have been some of the advice that they were hearing from Abraham. So we would think, logically, that Abraham, who was still around, that he would be constantly reminding both Isaac and Rebekah of the importance of waiting on God. Because, boy, he had certainly learned a lesson about that, hadn't he? And he would remind them, you know, not to do anything foolish, such as he had done when he had mistakenly gone in unto Hagar. Furthermore, Isaac and Rebekah would have had another reminder of God's amazing power. Now think about this one. Here they are waiting for 20 years to have children. And all the while, Abraham, (laughs) who's over 140 years old, is having one son after another (laughs) via his second wife, Keturah. I mean, I got to thinking about that. That would be a little bit frustrating, you know? Your old daddy is having all these sons and you're just... You know, really, and, and also his brother Ishmael was having all kinds of sons. He had 12 sons. We learned about that last week. So, you know, it's even, we even have to think of them as being more godly in their, their patience and, and the way that they handled this. Rebecca and Isaac were very, very godly. They didn't get frustrated. They knew that eventually God would prove faithful because they had to have children for the covenant promises to continue. Now, hopefully, also, they knew not to worry because, um, as I said, what they were praying, they knew, was in the perfect will of God. The Messiah would have to come through Isaac. So they really had no need to fret over their situation. They merely needed to trust God and continue to pray for his will to be accomplished on earth as he had established it in heaven. And sure enough, after only a 20-year wait, (laughs) I say only because compared to Abraham and Sarah, their wait was 25 years, so these two only had to wait 20 years. But after 20 years, or I should say 19 years, Rebecca conceived. And it wasn't too long into her pregnancy, however, before she realized that something was very strange. There was a definite struggle going on inside of her womb. So let's look now at the second part of our outline. Are you going to pass those out afterwards? 
Okay. All right. Don't leave without getting the notes and questions we have. Okay. They'll be passing them out at the end. All right. The struggling sons. When at last Rebecca conceived, and notice how in verse 21, a 21 year, I mean a 20 year wait for children isn't even addressed in that verse. Let's read it again. It says, And Isaac entreated the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord entreated of him, and Rebekah his wife conceived. I mean, there's 20 years in that verse. But, you know, as I said, with God, that wait, that 20 years, was inconsequential to him, according to his time frame. All right, so anyway, after she conceived, you would really think that now, at long last, there would not be a potential problem with the continuation of the covenant blessings or the inheritance, you know, at least not like there had been in the situation with Ishmael and Isaac, because Isaac and Rebekah had not resorted to taking matters into their own hands through a concubine or a handmaid as had occurred with Hagar. So it would seem like here now they're going to have a child, that there would be no struggles, no problem. That child would receive the covenant promises. He would be the firstborn, so there would be no problem. But, of course, as we find in the verses and the chapters to come regarding the offspring of Isaac and Rebekah, there would not only be struggles before birth... You know, while they're still in the womb, but there would actually be a struggle at the very time of their births, and there would be many struggles for years after their birth as well. And why was that? Because God put two nations inside of Rebecca's womb. Sometimes don't you just really wonder what <laughs> what God is doing? My goodness. Talk about some troubles. All right, let's look at their struggles now before birth. And for this, let's read verses 22 and 23. It says, And the children struggled within, uh, together within her. And she said, this is Rebecca speaking, If it be so, why am I thus? And she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said unto her, Two nations are in thy womb, and two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels. And the one people shall be stronger than the other people, and the elder shall serve the younger. Well, the first thing that we read about with regard to Rebecca's long-awaited pregnancy is that she did not have just one child in her womb, but she had two The plural word for children is definitely used. She was going to give birth to the first set of twins born in or recorded in the scripture. I know some say Cain and Abel were twins, but uh, most say that that's not true. God answered Isaac's prayer exceeding abundantly, didn't he? He'd been praying for 20 years, so... God gave him not just one son, but two. However, there was something definitely strange going on. There was a difficulty between the two babies inside of her, and Rebecca knew it. Notice they're called children. They're not called fetal tissue, right? There were definitely children in there. They were struggling together within her. And the Hebrew word, this is interesting, the Hebrew word which is used for struggled there is uh, a word which literally means to crush or to oppress. 
They were crushing and oppressing one another. Now, although Rebecca had never been pregnant before, she soon realized that what was happening inside of her was not normal. I should put that picture of her back up. <laughs> that what was happening inside of there was not really normal. And she, you know, she probably talked with her nurse, Deborah, and she would have talked to women who, have, who had had children. And, you know, she probably even let them feel her um, stomach to feel the movement as it was going on. And no one would have had the right explanation for what was happening. Poor, poor thing, can you imagine her trying to sleep at night with all that fighting going on inside of her? But being a godly and a wise woman, Rebecca did the right thing. What did she do? Well, she went to the Lord to inquire of him what he wanted her to understand about the situation within her. See, she knew that God was sovereign. She knew that God was in control and that he was doing whatever was happening for a purpose. A purpose. And amazingly, we find that for the first time in her life, the Lord actually answered Rebecca in some kind of an audible way. I don't know how this happened, if it uh, was, you know, she actually heard his voice or if it was in a dream or if the angel of the Lord appeared to her. I don't know because we're not told, but whatever, however he spoke to her, it was in such a real way that she would never forget it. He told her that the, um, basically that the the, the struggles were definitely a forewarning of many, of many future struggles and strife to come. She learned that she was not merely going to be the mother of Isaac's a child, but of Isaac's children. And not only was she going to be the mother of his children, but she was going to be the mother of two nations. The Lord told her that within her womb uh, were two sons... I'm not supposed to put that up yet. All right. Two sons who would each produce a nation. And those two nations, which we know would become Edom, E-D-O-M, Edom, that would come from Esau. And Israel, of course, would come from Jacob because Jacob's name is actually changed to Israel. So the two nations, Edom and Israel, those two nations would struggle against each other. So the struggle going on within her would be a struggle which would not only continue on throughout the lives of her two sons, but throughout the histories of the nations which would derive from those two sons. In fact, God told her that the people who would descend from the eldest son... Esau would serve those who would come from the youngest son, Jacob. The Lord was really telling Rebekah that the covenant blessing would be with which son? Jacob, the younger son, not the elder son. And this would be contrary to the ways of man because men traditionally have given the firstborn son the greater honor. Even in Judaism, it is the eldest son who would become the spiritual head of the family and who would take on the responsibilities of this estate uh, of his father and, and his father's business and who would be the son who would, would inherit a double portion of his father's inheritance. But God chose the younger son in this case. He, of course, had done the same thing when he had chosen Isaac rather than Ishmael. But there was an obvious reason there, because Ishmael had been the son of a bondwoman. But in this situation now, we see that both sons came from Isaac and his rightful wife. 
So why would God work in a manner contrary to human tradition and even his own future laws given in the Old Testament by giving the covenant promise to the younger son? Why would he declare that the younger son was to rule over the elder and and even make this declaration before those two sons were born? Well, there is one primary reason for this, and that is so that God could demonstrate his sovereignty. Because God is God, because God is the creator of heaven and earth and everything in it, in them, he has the sovereign right to do whatever he pleases. Would you agree with that? Yes? <laughs> if, if you're God, you have the right to do whatever you choose. And knowing God from his word, we should know that God never makes a mistake. And therefore, we will simply be wise not to question what he chooses to do. God is not capricious. He is not, uh, he does not act in an arbitrary or haphazard manner. He is not erratic or irrational about his decisions. Everything that he does is part of his all-wise and all-loving plan for his own people. God not only chose the younger son Jacob instead of the elder son Esau in order to demonstrate his sovereignty, but he also did this in order to demonstrate his mercy and his grace. The entire purpose behind his covenant promise regarding the coming Savior, you know, the seed of the woman, which was given first to Adam back in the garden in Genesis 3.15 and continued on down to Abraham and then to Isaac and now to Jacob. The whole purpose of that promise regarding the Savior was to demonstrate his sovereign will with regard to his mercy and his grace on undeserving man. God had chosen to shower his grace and his mercy on sinful man and to give him the opportunity through his faith in the Redeemer to inherit the promised land of heaven. So what better way to demonstrate his sovereignty to do as he pleases and his mercy and his grace than to give the inheritance of the covenant blessings to not what man would expect, the elder son, but instead to the younger son, because the younger son, according to the laws of man, would not receive the inheritance. So it would only be by way of the grace and the mercy of God that the younger son would, you know, inherit the covenant blessings and the father's inheritance. Only God's grace could make this possible. So what God is teaching us by his choice of Jacob the younger son, is that a person does not receive the benefits of his promises, you know, his promises of heaven, his promises through, that are available through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. A person doesn't receive those benefits of his promises by way of the law or by way of man's traditions or man's opinions or because he deserves them or because he works so hard to gain them, or because a family member desires for him to have them. An individual can only receive the benefits of God's promises concerning heaven and the Savior by way of what? God's grace and mercy. Just like Jacob, you see, if the individual is second-born, if he is born again, 
he then, by God's grace, receives the inheritance. So God, in his sovereign right to choose as he wills, chose Jacob, the second-born son, to continue the covenant line of blessing. This is really a lot of deep theology here, but um, in Romans uh, 9, verses 10 to 13, I guess I didn't put the last verse up there, the Apostle Paul really reiterates this truth regarding divine election. You know, God has the right to choose who, who he will. And that's what Paul says. It says in Romans 9, And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac, for the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, so they hadn't done any, they hadn't sinned. They were just babies in a womb. So, he, and even before they were born, it says that he, um, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. It was said unto her, the elder shall serve the younger. And then it goes on, I didn't put this up there, but it goes on to say, as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Now that, you say, wow, that really sounds strong. Is there such a thing as divine election taught in the Bible? Yes, there is. Is it also taught in the Bible that man has free choice? And, you know, there's human responsibility, yes. It teaches both, you know. It's, theologians have argued about all this for years. I just know it teaches both, and so I teach both. <laughs> How it figures out is up to God. But let me just comment on that last declaration where it says, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. That's a quote that Paul took from Malachi chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. And it really is uh, oftentimes misunderstood by those who think that God here is talking about a divine hatred of the man Esau himself. But the book of Genesis never tells us of any hatred of God toward Esau, the man. Malachi's statement actually came a thousand years after Esau and Jacob. And it seems reasonable, therefore, to interpret Malachi's statement about God loving Jacob and hating Esau to mean instead that God's hatred was against Esau's descendants who were very idolatrous and, uh, and big-time enemies of Jacob's descendants who were the Jews, the Israelites. So let me just explain that there. All right, now there is something else to be said about the struggle which was going on within Rebecca, and it's really interesting in connection with the typology that we have already seen regarding Isaac and Rebecca as a picture of Christ and his church. We learned in verse 21 that the problem of barrenness or fruit was a problem which existed within who? Isaac? Was it his problem? No. The problem of fruitlessness existed within Rebekah. It was her sterility problem, not Isaac's. Any failure of those of us who make up the church to bring forth fruit cannot be blamed on Christ, right? Who is represented by Isaac. Christ, and and here Isaac, is all that he should be. Isaac was not the problem. 
what needed to happen was a, a miracle needed to occur in Rebecca before she could bring forth new life, before she could bring forth fruit. And Isaac knew this, and therefore, just like Christ, he interceded on her behalf. Don't we have an intercessor on our behalf, our high priest? And he didn't blame Rebecca because even though the barrenness was within her, he realized that apart from him, she could do nothing. So he carried on an intercessory ministry on her behalf, praying that she might bear fruit. So again, it continues with our uh, type of Christ and his church. Then, when Rebecca did conceive, let's see, go back to, keep looking at this poor pregnant woman here. <laughs> uh, she almost immediately became aware of that battle which was waging within her, you know, inside of her. She had two natures inside of her, and they were at war one with another. When she had been barren, you know, there was no struggle going on with, within her. But once she bore fruit, the struggle began. You see, one being within her, who we know turns out to be Esau, one being would be ruled by his own worldly and carnal lusts. He would have no desire for spiritual matters. Whereas the other being within her, Jacob, would have a heart for the things of God, even though he would not always do go about doing things, you know, in the right way, yet his desire was to please God. And so he would be he was driven by a heavenly vision, we could say. Well, Dr. John Phillips writes this. Just listen to this quote. It's a little bit long, but it's interesting. <clears throat> he says Quote, we have all experienced what Rebecca experienced. As long as we are content to live carnal, worldly lives, we have no problem. But once we are determined to meet the conditions that lead to fruitfulness, the battle begins. Many a young believer has been as perplexed as Rebecca at that state of affairs. The old nature is neither eradicated when we trust Christ, nor is it canceled when we yield to him for fruitfulness. It is an ever-present foe, bitterly hostile to any work of the Spirit in us, and quick to contest every Spirit-born effort toward fruitfulness for God. The struggle within Rebecca's womb pictures the relationship between the two natures in the believer. The old nature is the elder of the two for the simple reason that it was there first. The new nature does not arrive upon the scene until the new birth, right? The future, however, this is the good news. The future lies with the new nature. Ultimate victory is assured for the new nature. The elder shall serve the younger. Yes, that is good news for all of us who, you know, go on all the time with the struggle within us. God has pledged himself to support the new nature in its struggle for mastery. Therefore, in the end, it cannot lose. It will triumph. End of quote. Isn't that exciting news? Do you ever think of that? 
You know, the struggle going on within Rebecca as a picture of us and the battle going on within us between our old man and our new man. It's just all so beautiful. Well, the struggle inside of Rebecca did not only occur before birth, but it even existed at the time of the birth of her two two sons. So that's what we look at next in our outline as we look at verses 24 to 26. And when her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb. And the first came out red, red all over like a hairy garment. I remember when my son was born, I thought I'd given birth to an animal. (laughs) He had a hairline that went down to about his eyebrows. Fortunately, it rubbed off. Oh, that's what I thought of when I read this. The first came out red all over like a hairy garment, and they called his name Esau. And after that came his brother out, and his hand took hold on Esau's heel, and his name was called Jacob. And how old was Isaac? Isaac was three score. A score is 20 years, so three times 20 is 60 years old when she bare them. When the basic nine months of pregnancy were accomplished, Rebecca, we are told, gave birth to twin boys who were immediately recognized to be fraternal twins but not identical because they didn't look alike at all. The first boy to be born is described as being what color? Red all over like a hairy garment. So I think it was probably his hair that was red. Maybe his skin was red, too. You've seen a lot of babies born that are kind of red-looking. And his na- he, he was named Esau. Why was he named Esau? Well, Esau <laughs> means Harry. So I wondered, why didn't they just name him Harry? There's <laughs> <laughs> a lot of Harrys, right? Uh, Now, from Esau would come the Edomites, you know, the Edomite peoples. Actually, it says in Genesis 36, 8, it says, quote, Esau is Edom. So from Esau would come the Edomite peoples. Also, the Edomites lived near Mount Seir. And the Hebrew word for hairy is seir. So the Edomites lived near Mount Harry. <laughs> Not Mount Airy. <laughs> Mount Harry. <laughs> Edom may have even been a kind of a nickname. I think it was a nickname for Esau. Because Edom means red. Okay. And that was a name which developed not only from his red color, I suppose the red color of his hair, but also it developed from his affinity for red lentil soup, (laughs) which we'll read about next week, Lord willing. You can see that in verse 30. Furthermore, the appearance of Isaac and Rebekah's firstborn son manifested the Adamic sin nature. Because not only was Esau covered with hair, like some kind of a a baby animal, you know, depicting the natural man's animalistic behavior, but he was red, okay? And the, the name Adam, just like Edom, Adam, Edom, has a close connection 
with the earth and the red clay out of which Adam, the first man, Adam means man, was formed. So the lower nature of man, you know, his Adamic, natural, carnal nature was depicted by this firstborn son of Isaac and Rebekah, who was appropriately called Esau, Harry, and nicknamed Edom, Red. So you see, really, there's a lot of play here on words concerning Esau's name and his physical description and his future nature and also his descendants. Now some have, and this is kind of an interesting thing to think about, some have suggested that Satan may have attempted to use Esau in Rebekah's womb to do fatal damage to Jacob. After all, wasn't it... uh, Um, Satan's continuous intention to destroy the messianic line in any way he could so that the the coming redeemer, the one who would crush his head, would never be born. So some say that perhaps the, the struggling going on inside of the womb could have resulted in an uh, um, umbilical cord strangulation or something of that nature to kill Jacob. Or perhaps what he was trying to do was kill both sons. You know, actually remember back to the word struggled? It means oppress or crush. So maybe both sons, there was an attempt there to kill both of them off. I don't know, that's just something I throw out. I can't, certainly can't prove that. Well, we learn of Jacob's birth in verse 26. He proceeded from his mother immediately on the heels... (laughs) of his twin brother Esau. And literally he did on the heels of Esau. In fact, he even had his little infant hand holding fast to one of Esau's heels as he entered into this world. And consequently, his parents named him Jacob, which in Hebrew is Yaakov, meaning heel catcher or supplanter. You know, one who follows closely. The name Jacob or Jacob sounds like both the Hebrew word for heel, which is akeb, and the verb akeb, which, I mean akab, which means to watch from behind or to follow closely. So they got the name, you know, from the word heel and also from the, the verb to follow closely. So again, there was a play on words here. The, the little birth action of Jacob, you know, was a symbolic and a prophetic picture of what was to come in later years when Jacob would grasp what Esau might have expected to have as the firstborn son. It's also a picture of Jacob's character as one who for many years would strive to move ahead of others. Although Esau, who grew to be a cunning hunter and a man of the field, I don't think we've read that yet, we'll see that in verse 27, although he appeared even at birth to be the stronger of the two sons, Jacob, who we'll find out is described as a plain man and a tent dweller, he would actually one day replace his elder brother. God had declared that this would happen. And we find that even at the time of their births, this struggle for this replacement was already underway. 
And this is really good news, as we said before, for the struggle that goes on within the Christian, you know, with our old nature and our new nature. The great lesson of the twin boys of Rebecca, of her womb, is that because of the bruising of Christ's heel upon the cross of Calvary, remember what it says in Genesis 3.15? That the seed of the serpent would crush, would bruise his heel, the seed of the woman's heel. But because of that bruising of the Lord's heel on the cross of Calvary, our new nature, which is received at the time of our second birth, you know, when we are born again, our new nature is able to supplant our old Adamic sin nature. It says in Romans 6, 6, uh, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with Christ that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. Just keep that in mind. Your new nature will have ultimate victory over your old nature. Well, the twin troubles which began in the womb and were even evident at the time of their birth continued to develop as Esau and Jacob grew older and became even more different from one another in both their characters and in their heart attitudes. Neither did it help matters that their parents had uh, made made the, the unfortunate mistake of favoring one son over another, what we could call parental favoritism. Um, Isaac became partial to Esau, while Rebekah became partial to Jacob. And so the struggles continued even after their births. And this is what we look at lastly in verses 27 and 28. It says, And the boys grew... And Esau was a cunning hunter, a man of the field. And Jacob was a plain man, dwelling in tents. And Isaac loved Esau because he did eat of his venison. But Rebekah loved Jacob. The differences in the characters of the twins became increasingly apparent as they grew older. Esau acquired great skill as a hunter, we are told. He was an outdoor type of a guy who loved the open air life out in the fields. On the other hand, Jacob is described as a plain man, you know, dwelling in tents. Now, at face value, most of us or especially if men were studying this, most of them would read these descriptions and probably be drawn more toward Esau, who was, you know, buff. He was a man's man. (laughs) Jacob sounds kind of boring, doesn't he? And uh, kind of almost wimpy. He's a plain man and he dwells in tents. He sounds kind of like a boy who prefers to do womanly things. Like we'll see next week. You know, he stays inside and he's doing the cooking. So he sounds kind of boring and and sort of womanly. Um, However, there is more than meets the eye concerning these descriptions of Esau and Jacob. First of all, we might ask the question, as Dr. Henry Morris does in his commentary, what is so good about being a cunning hunter? The first question we should ask, right? As women, that's easy to ask. (laughs) Dr. Morris points out 
that Isaac's family, number one, was not in danger from any kind of wild beasts, nor were they in need of any animals for food. I mean, they had more ample provision than probably anybody else in Canaan. They had all kinds of large flocks and herds of cattle and chickens and, every, and goats and, and sheep and more food than, than they would ever need. So, you know, he didn't need to be a hunter in order to protect them from wild beasts. He didn't need to be a hunter in order to provide them for food, with food. And then he also points out that there was obviously no overpopulation of animals that needed to be thinned out for the sake of a balanced ecology. And this is obvious because of the fact that um, he had to become a cunning hunter in order to find any animals. I mean, they weren't out there in abundance. He had to be cunning to get them. And we know later on, I think it's over in chapter 27. Um, oh, no, no, it's not. it's not. It's in the rest of this chapter that we'll look at next week. He was out all day hunting and didn't even catch anything. Or not catch, that's fishing. He didn't even get, <laughs> he didn't even get anything. All right, so, um, so he's not out there in order to feed the family or to help out the ecology. He was simply an outdoor sportsman. He preferred outdoor recreation, making sports, you know, his business. He enjoyed his freedom and the license to do as he pleased. He enjoyed feeling independent and having no home responsibilities. He loved the excitement of an unbridled behavior and, and lifestyle. He didn't want to, to be tied down to anything or to anyone. He was what we could call footloose and fancy free, taking very little responsibility for the family, the affairs of the family or its large estate. Now remember, Isaac's estate was probably one of the largest, if not the largest, in all of Canaan. So there was a lot of work to be done. And yet, where do we find Esau? He's always out somewhere hunting. Isaac's estate needed a lot of work, and yet he was not interested. He, Esau wasn't. He was a self-centered and irresponsible man who cared more about feeding his own pleasures than being saddled with the responsibility of family affairs and business matters concerning the estate. However, as the eldest son, he should have been involved. Now, on the other hand, Jacob, who is described as a plain man who dwelt in tents, we can say, well, what's so wrong about that? Actually, that's good because, um, first of all, when we consider the word that's translated as plain in the King James Version, I think in some of the Bibles it might be translated as quiet. Does anybody have quiet? Yes, okay. It's translated as either plain or quiet. That Hebrew word T-A-M actually means perfect or complete or mature. It is the very same word which is used in Job 1.8 to describe Job as a perfect, a tam, T-A-M, an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil. So really, the description of Jacob as a plain man doesn't mean that he was dull and sort of nondescript. What it really means is that he was mature in his attitude toward his 
father's estate responsibilities. And more importantly, he was mature and serious about God's covenant promises. Like both his grandfather Abraham and his own father Isaac, we're also told that he dwelt in tents. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, that just shows that your, your real sight, your real focus is where? On heaven. You know, you're not putting down any permanent roots here. You just live in a tent. It's said of Abraham that he sojourned in the land of promise as in a strange country dwelling in tents or tabernacles. You see, Jacob was concerned more about God's plans and God's promises than he was with physical pleasures. Unlike Esau, whose passion was to kill, Jacob's focus and passion and desire was to protect. He was not a sissy type of a weakling, as some people have misinterpreted him to be. Rather, Jacob's interests were centered on his family and the family estate, you know, the estate responsibilities, as well as spiritual responsibilities. He was more a man of the fold than a man of the field, like his brother. And so if we were doing a little comparison, we could say that Esau was more like Cain, whereas Jacob was more like Abel. Unfortunately, Isaac and Rebekah made a very grievous mistake regarding their sons, a mistake which I'm afraid is all too common with parents. It's something we have to watch as parents and as grandparents. They showed favoritism and partiality when it came to their two sons. Genesis 25:28 tells us that Isaac loved Esau, whereas Rebekah loved Jacob. It was wrong on the part of both parents to love one son over the other. But there was a greater weakness on the part of Isaac because his favoritism toward Esau was encouraging the young man in the wrong direction in which he was already headed. The reason for Isaac's love of Esau is also a very poor reason. It's a very carnal reason. Why are we told that he loved him? <laughs> because of the food. Because he did eat of his venison. And, you know, Isaac does not turn out to be some kind of a, a gourmet food expert <laughs> because we find out later on that Rebecca could actually prepare goat meat in such a manner that Isaac could not tell it from Esau's venison. So this is really a pathetic reason for choosing one son over another. So perhaps there's a little bit more behind this. Perhaps Isaac who was rather a passive or at least a submissive type of man, perhaps he saw some of his own dreams fulfilled in his eldest son. Do parents do that? Mm, boy, you better believe it. Maybe uh, he, you know, because Isaac wasn't quite so buff and adventuresome, maybe he was... Um, fulfilling his dreams in his son. You know, Isaac had spent most of his life overshadowed by others of stronger character, 
such as his great father, Abraham. I mean, Isaac's always in the shadow of Abraham. And also, he's even overshadowed by his active, strong-willed wife, Rebekah. And his equally strong-willed son, Jacob, will later on overshadow him. And remember, even from a toddler, he has been teased by his elder brother, Ishmael. And he then we see him on Mount Moriah, which is the, the climax of his life. But even there, he was submit, you know, submissive to his father's will. And he was likewise, we saw him in the whole choice of a wife for him. He was very passive. He just let others choose his wife for him. And then we saw him pensively meditating out in a field when he met Rebecca, who then brought him comfort over the loss of his mother, uh, the the heartbreak that he was feeling over having lost his mother three years earlier. So what kind of a picture are we getting of Isaac? Not really, yeah, more passive, more submissive, or more meditative. Not Certainly not a cunning hunter type of a, a outdoorsman. Perhaps then Isaac saw in Esau some of the character that he lacked in himself. The problem, however, was that Esau, Esau did not have a character to be desired by a godly man. Esau was carnal. Esau was worldly. He had no desire or appreciation for spiritual matters. In fact, the scripture actually tells us, you, you might say, Catherine, you're being awfully hard on this poor Esau. But the scripture in Hebrews 12:16 tells us that Esau was a fornicator and a profane man. That's pretty harsh language. He was not a godly person. This, this young man who became an older man, I don't believe, like Ishmael, I don't believe he was saved or God would not have called him a fornicator and a profane, ungodly man. He rejected his spiritual rights. I mean, to be in the line of the Messiah, he rejected that for a pot of red lentil soup. That's what kind of a man we're talking about. And yet Isaac loved him because of his venison. So Isaac, not only do we see, was a passive man previously, but now we find that he was a passive father because he surely should have taken a firmer stand against the type of carnal lifestyle which Esau was pursuing. At the very least, Isaac should not have encouraged that lifestyle. But that's exactly what he did do because he demonstrated obvious favoritism toward Esau. You know, the reason that is given to us in the Bible is simply because he liked the taste of venison. And Esau was very aware of the manner in which he could gain his father's heart by um, pandering his appetites. And we'll see this in chapter 27 when Esau attempted to gain the blessings of the firstborn from his father, even though both of them surely knew of what God had foretold to Rebekah when they were still in the womb that the younger would serve the elder and that yet they tried to 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 um, surpass that or you know ignore it so we could say really that the high point of spirituality in Isaac's life was 
with regard to his journey to Mount Moriah and what he did on Mount Moriah when he was willing to lay down his life as a sacrifice. That was the high point of Isaac's life. From, from there, it was downhill, <laughs> literally. It was downhill spiritually um, because he really should not have permitted his love for savory meat to cause him to love his elder ungodly son more than his younger spiritually minded son. I'm not saying his younger son was perfect, but at least his heart was set toward God. And obviously he was the one God had chosen. Well, on the other hand, Rebecca favored Jacob. And even though this maternal favoritism was also wrong, yet at least she did favor the son whom God himself had declared would be the one to carry on the messianic line and the covenant promises. Actually, we are not told for Rebe of Rebecca's reason for loving Jacob. It just says, but Rebecca loved Jacob. And so she's sort of like Sarah when Sarah asked to have Ishmael cast out. Sarah knew that the covenant promise was to be through Isaac. Now here, Rebecca is favoring the son who she was told by God would be the one to carry on the covenant promises. So, in conclusion, there were twin troubles between Esau and Jacob before their births, at the time of their births, and for many, many years following their births. And those struggles after their births continued because they were sparked by totally different personalities and heart attitudes, and it wasn't helped at all by parental favoritism. In the last section, which we'll look at next week of chapter 25, we're going to discover just how vastly different these two sons of Isaac and Rebekah really were because their set of values were worlds apart. So next week we're going to look at uh, beans for the birthright. I think that's what I've decided to call it, beans for the birthright. <laughs> All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for the patience of your people. Again, thank you for all that you teach us through these simple little stories about just a woman giving birth to twins. And yet we see, because it's your word, that it is so deep once again. We thank you, Lord, for teaching us about the, um, the struggle that goes on within us between our old man and our new man. And that you have promised that we ultimately will have victory with the new man, that the younger will serve the elder. Father, I thank you again for um, the opportunity we have to come together to study your word. I pray that if any of us are having a struggle with uh, parental favoritism, that we would adjust our situation and, and review it and look at it and, and, and try to overcome that because we know that it is not of you. You are no respecter of persons, and we need to tr treat each and every one of our children uh, equally with as much love. So, Lord, help anyone here who might have that problem to, to be able to deal with it in a godly manner. Again, I just pray for these women that you would bless them abundantly and help them to have a wonderful and a good day. And selfishly, I just want to pray for my daughter, Connie, to pass her exam at 3.30 today. Thank you, Lord Jesus, I pray in your name. Amen.